You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, and also Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, to start off our sermon this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Flipping back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning, we're going to talk about the issue of church discipline. Now, if that isn't a fun Sunday morning topic, I don't know what is. We're going to talk about the issue of church discipline. We're going to look at the ground level of what the implications of being a church body are. I mean, there, there are certain implications. If we're going to go through a series and talk about kind of high-level stuff, which is what we've done, the nature of the church as the body of Christ from which he is the head. We're talking about the idea from the book of Philippians that the, Paul was thankful to the Philippian church because of their partnership in the gospel that at a high level, these, this church is the gathering of people who agree upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been saved from our sins through the work of Christ. And that, that they, have a, they are partnered in the gospel, but that, that partnership in the gospel is a meaningful partnership. That there actually is active engagement and relationship going on within the church. Such that the church then exists um, to make disciples, to be disciples. And the way that we phrased it through this series is that we exist to shine the supremacy of Christ, and this is from later on in the book of Philippians, to shine the supremacy of Christ into every corner of our lives and onto every corner of our world. 
That's kind of high-level stuff, okay? So we're talking about broad realities of what the church is meant to be, partnered in the gospel, working, existing as disciples, working in the supremacy of Christ into every corner of our lives, which means there is no area of your life in which Christ is not king over. There is no, no, no little certain corner that this is for me, this is this some certain attitude or some certain lifestyle, this is just mine. We, we work to spread the shine, the supremacy of Christ into every corner of our lives and then onto every corner of our world. And last week we took a break to jump back into where do we get all of our authority? Where do we get, what do we stand upon? What is the firm foundation that we stand upon? We did a whole half hour, 28 minutes last week on the authority of God's word, the authority of scripture to say to us, what does, what is shining the supremacy of Christ into every corner of our lives and onto every corner of our word, world? Where does that authority to say what shining the supremacy of Christ is? And that comes from our Bibles. That comes from the 66 books of our scriptures. And so, laying all of that out over the past five weeks, we could have done more, but we did five weeks of it. How do those realities play out in the life of a local church? And there are tons of things to be said here. Like, there are tons of positive ways that that plays out. And church discipline, believe it or not, is one of the positive ways, even though it sounds negative. But there are tons of positive ways that this works out in the local church. There's so much to be said here. Our church covenant, it looks like this. I don't know if you've read it or seen it. It's just a page. But it lays out some of those realities of what it means to, to, to live under that reality. We work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise and affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may acquire. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may any time may be under our care. That's a fun, that's a long way of saying our children are those that we have care of in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. So this covenant has... There, we, could, we could go into all of those areas and back them up with Scripture and see how this has worked out in the life of the local church. Many of those issues there will not be any dispute over. But as a local church, there may be some that we would dispute over. And I think we, we do good to spend some time addressing them. And so this morning I want to talk about the issue of Church discipline. Now, it seems like such a dirty word. Discipline. Talk about church discipline. No one likes the idea of being disciplined. How do I, you all know this, if you've raised kids, if, you, if, you are, if you're a boss and you have an employee, no one likes the idea of discipline. It does not sound good. Um, 
Likely, I would agree with many. There are, we could look around and find thousands of examples of poor discipline. You know, we've, we've seen it. We're, we're at the pool right now every day almost, and parents come down, and you see, I mean, I don't, I, never mind. I shouldn't throw shade to parents that are in my own pool. My, you might look at me and say, I can't believe that guy is getting after his kids. They're at a pool. How many times uh, the, the parent who's sitting by the edge of the pool, it doesn't want splashed. And you're like, are you kidding me? Uh, you're at a pool. You're going to get splashed, and they're going to discipline the kid for splashing them or something. It's like, no, no, that's not how this works. You don't want splashed. Don't sit by the pool. But we, we, we can all think of all kinds of examples of poor discipline. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's all over the place of, of uh, instances and situations where discipline comes in and it's either too harsh or it's unrealistic or it's too nitty, nitty into the nitty gritty, too nitpicky. That was the word I was looking for. Too nitpicky. And then we all know of these instances. But I've got to say this, that if, if there is no instrument of discipline within a church, it is not a meaningful expression of the church. If there is no instrument of discipline within a church, it is not a meaningful expression of the church. That may sound like a radical statement, but at one level, it's entirely obvious. If you think about it, there's this is an entirely obvious consequence of seeking to be an organization that stands for something. If you're going to try to accomplish anything, if you have a goal that you are working toward, any, any type of organization, if there is a focus, if there's a mission, if there's a purpose, there has to be discipline for all of those voices that would pull you off of the main focus. There has to be, in any sort of organization, some reality of discipline. For instance, if I change my mind this afternoon and decide that I am now going to be an atheist, which is someone who doesn't believe God exists, an atheist. If I'm going this afternoon, I decide to be an atheist, it would be ridiculous for me to think that I should remain a Christian pastor because I don't believe in God. And likewise, it would be ridiculous for you as a church to not fire me as I try to promote atheism because I don't believe in God. That, that would be ridiculous. You would need to, you'd be obligated to fire me. You know what that's called? Discipline. That's called discipline. It's drawing a line and saying, if you go beyond this, if you go beyond this line, you cannot claim to be a part of us as a Christian church. Now, one of the reactions I usually get is, well, isn't this just being judgmental? Should we be judgmental? And I read these two texts because does the Bible disagree with itself on this? Didn't you know what I mean? We got the Matthew 18 passage, which is talking about church discipline in its context. And then we got Matthew 7, which is often quoted, judge not that you not be judged. You know, those, both of those sayings came from one person's mouth, Jesus. He said both of these things. Judge not, lest you be judged, and yet... If a brother sins against you, go and tell him. And if he denies it, take him to two or three others. And if they deny it, take him to the church and let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector if he doesn't repent of his sin. This Matthew chapter 7 passage, judge not. And all of this whole statement here, what is the point of Jesus' message here? Is it just that we could never say something is sin? We can never judge. We do not judge 
because you will do not judge not that you may not be judged. Is that Jesus' point, that we can never point out problems in the lives of those around us? And in fact, if you do, you're guilty of hypocrisy. You're, you're guilty of the, the, sin of the, the sin of judging if you were to point out sin. Rather, what Jesus is warning of here is hypocrisy. He's warning of hypocrisy. He's saying, judge not lest you be judged. Judge with which the, the framework which you expect to be judged yourself. He goes on to explain by using the plank and the speck illustration, which we all get, right? You're going around trying to remove a speck of dust from someone's eye, and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your head. One of you has a big problem, and you need to take the two-by-four out of your head that's the first problem that needs to get resolved. And you can imagine, I've heard a pastor use the illustration of a guy walking around trying to pick out specks all the while that he hits him in the head with his two-by-four as he's trying to get the speck out of their eye because he's got this giant plank, this log, sticking out of his head. What is Jesus' recommendation here? Get the log out of your own eye. Absolutely. This is not some sort of issue of um, pretending like there's all these people with all these problems while I sit here pure and spotless, there is the reality that we all have issues and we all have sin, we all have transgression and we need to be faithful at removing and facing the, own, the sin in our own life. But it does not end there. Like oftentimes I think we either end at 7-1, judge not that you not be judged, or else we end with, well, take the log out of your own eye. But Jesus goes on. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There still is reason to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Just don't do it from a position like as though you don't have your own specks, your own logs, your own sin that you need to deal with, but it does need to be removed. We ought to be diligent at removing the log that is stuck in our own eye so that we can be effective at removing the speck from another's eye. And this happens all the time in relationships. Like um, a familiar problem in our generation today is just having your phone. Like we're, gonna, we're all going to have all sorts of physical therapy needs from our necks constantly being craned down, staring at our phones all the time. Like I suppose the remedy is I suppose get a phone holder. But no, that's not the remedy. The remedy is stop looking at your phone so much. But, but you've all probably been in this situation that how many couples get into fights when one individual has decided that for the past five minutes they've not been on their phone and their, their spouse shouldn't be either. And so they say, well, you're on that phone an awful lot. And the spouse says, because you've put yours down for five minutes, I should get rid of mine. And there's kind of like, there, there's this hypocrite. Why don't you take this log out of your own eye before you correct me on my, my spec problem? That doesn't go well. Does anyone, I mean, I just, this, this happens, okay? How do we solve this? If, if we agree that looking into a device to the neglect of your family and your spouse and life around you, if we agree that this is a problem, the way that we would address that is that first, you have to confess, if it's a problem for you, you have to face it. That phone face is a problem for me. And but so the, the remedy, if your spouse, if those around you have phone face, is not just condemning all of them while you keep phone face, or you keep, the, your, you know, you keep your phone in front of you. The remedy is, Confessing, I have a huge problem with my phone. This is, I've got, there's a real issue here 
and, and I see that we're all suffering from it, let's all put this down. I mean, there's various ways you could go about it, but that's the kind of illustration Jesus is using. That's taking the beam out of your own eye and working at the speck in someone else's eye as well. Jesus is not saying that his followers can never point out sin in someone's life, just that they must be very careful in how they live their own lives and how they point out sin in others around them. And so Matthew 18, this passage on, this is why I said sweat if someone calls you in, because then if, if it's not just your person, it's not just uh, a friend in your church that said there's sin, it's not just a couple of people maybe in your community group or your close friendships, but it's the church leaders who've called you in and say, let's open up to Matthew 18. They're likely getting, you've, you've likely gotten to this place of where you've hit the third rung of church discipline. But there's this clear pattern laid down by Jesus, which takes sin seriously, takes transgression against God seriously. The answer is not to just ignore it. He lays down this several-step process with the ultimate goal of winning your brother or sister out of their sin back to Christ. To, to winning them out of the, the slavery to sin that they're in. If this, if this person sins, you go and you tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Some people in that passage there. And they say, well, if you know of sin, you can go to someone privately, but then it ends there. But Jesus goes on. If he doesn't listen, remains persistent in their sin, doesn't agree that it is sin, you go and take two or three others, one or two others with you, to say, no, the activity you're engaged in, this lifestyle, this whatever, this, this anger, this unforgiveness, this whatever it may be, is, is sin, is then established by two or three witnesses. And if the person persists in their sin, if this person persists in their rebellion against God's revealed will for their life, then that is to be taken to the church and discipline is to happen. We have an obligation from Jesus to guard each other against the deceitfulness of sin. That if sin is ruining your life, we have an obligation in and amongst our... If we believe this idea of a partnership in the gospel, that that is the church, then that does come loaded with the obligation to protect and encourage one another from sin. I need you for this. We all need each other for this. This is a church reality. That in the reason why it's, we're trying to push for close relationships and knowing of each other is because that's how that sin becomes revealed. It comes to light. And then you're able to, in those moments, one another discuss these sorts of issues and really work at living a life that reflects the character of Christ. People ask, well, won't this push people away? Won't this make people not want to show up? Well, i got to be honest, maybe. That's a real chance. Yes. Won't this push people away? Won't this make some people not want to show up? But listen, if, if discipleship is aimed, what is the aim of this? The aim of this is your greatest joy in Jesus. Sin plagues you and prevents you from the joy that there is in Christ. When you pursue lesser treasures, when you pursue lesser idols, when you pursue the things of this world over pursuing Christ, you are going to end with a lesser pleasure. 
You're going to land with the end with a lesser joy. The goal of this is your and my greatest joy in Jesus. And so if people understand that, that what we're saying is not just stop for the sake of stopping. We're saying, listen, there is sin. You need to turn from it. That's, that the treasure that is Christ would be yours. Turn from this lesser treasure. If they will understand that, then when someone walks away, it isn't so that they were pushed away in any meaningful sense, but rather it was just revealed that that was never really their point of being here anyway, to treasure Christ more than anything else. But if, in time, by God's grace, they come to their senses over their sin, they know exactly the place to go that will encourage them in their pursuit of joy in Jesus. I want to be about one thing, joy in Jesus. And so, yes, that does mean killing off the things that will not bring us joy in Jesus. And in the moment, we are convinced that by the deceitfulness of sin, that these lesser things are what's really going to bring us joy. That my greatest happiness is going to be found in the things of this world and not in Jesus. And there does need to be conviction of that. We have a case of this in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to flip back to it, we'll just read it quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we'll read the first couple of verses and then jump down to um, 11 through 13. That can't be right. Oh, yeah, it is right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a mess. This is what he says. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Jumping down to verse 11. Now I am writing you to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So this is someone who claims to be a Christian. Earlier he's saying you can't, you can't avoid associating with sinfulness. We live in a broken world. It's, it's everywhere. But for the person who claims the name of Christ, yet willfully charges into guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's wild. That's wild. A clear case of the church disciplining someone who is transgressing God's good and perfect will. Now, all of this should be done in the context of a relationship. This is why it's so important for us to know who is a part of us and who isn't. We really can't go around in loving confrontation with just random people on the street. <laughs> and I think that's where sometimes when we talk about an issue of a church trying to take seriously discipline and things like this, that we begin to imagine we're out just marching on the street, calling out whoever we see and saying, hey, this is, you know, calling them out on some sort of issue that we see as sin. That's not what, that's not what this is about. That's why it's so important to clearly understand who's a member here. 
Who's in fellowship with us here? Who is someone who has covenanted with us to be a part of this local body? Then deep and meaningful friendships can be pursued, and then we are able to actually faithfully practice discipline by discipling one another. By saying, this is a sin issue in our year life. I mean, my, my wife and I have these conversations quite frequently. And I don't know as though it ends up one of us just always walking when we say, this is a sin issue. This is, this is an area of your life where you, we are treasuring, I am treasuring, you are treasuring something more than Christ. And we are grateful for it with each other. Because the goal is to shine the supremacy of Christ into every corner and onto every corner. And so this is why deep and meaningful relationships within the church must be pursued. But what I want you to turn to see further is that this is not, this is an obligation upon the church, but it is not just an obligation that we must keep because the scripture tells us to. It is an issue of love. It's an issue of love. If you want to love people, you must Warn them when they are going ways that are damaging to them. You must. Love demands it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7, 8 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Paul is using just the clear illustration, talking about the, the, the discipline that comes from God, but he's using the obvious illustration that if you love, if you're a part of a family, then discipline is involved there for your ultimate good. What our culture tries to make true today is that love means never correcting, only and always accepting. And it's a nice platitude, but even they can't keep it. Because the minute I say, no, you need to correct, no, there needs to be discipline, they say no one should, that the, those who claim to practice this idea of love and, and only accepting and never correcting, when they say that, they're attempting to correct me. <laughs> and so they're actually guilty of the, same, the very thing they're trying to promote. We can never, we can never correct, we can never um, and only accept and affirm. Well, when we say that, then you're immediately trying to correct and deny and not affirm someone who says, no, actually, discipline should be there. Love is honesty. Love is caring enough to warn someone who is going in a direction that will do damage to their lives. Love is warning someone who is doing damage to their own soul. Love is confronting them about the sin in their lives. Love is speaking truthfully. And then... This is why, this is where Christian discipline becomes beautiful. Then graciously telling them the good news of the grace of God. This is why we should have lessened reservations about confronting sin. We know the remedy. Sin is not the final say in the life of a Christian. Your shortcomings, your failures, your sins, your transgressions, they do not have the final say in your life. It is okay for, some, for people to come to you and say, I think this is a sin issue in your life. It's okay to confront sin in your own life. Why? Because we have a remedy. We have an answer. We have the solution to sin. It is for the freedom from sin, its penalty, its power, and one day fully from its presence 
that Christ has come and died for. If we don't face that sin, though, we give it place by pretending that it doesn't exist. It takes up residence within us. Deliverance from sin begins with having the eyes to see it as sin. This is part of the benefit of having brothers and sisters in Christ who are living for the same goal. It's shine the supremacy of Christ into every corner of your life. Out of love for each other, we encourage each other to pursue Christ over everything else. And this includes the call to forsake all that pulls us away from Christ. What needs brought to light in our lives? What sin do we live with by simply denying that it exists? What conversations are we having with fellow Christ lovers about these issues? Don't run from them, but pursue them. Because when that sin is confronted, we know exactly who to run to. Christ was without sin. Christ had no need for discipline, yet he submitted himself to, to, to suffering that he might learn endurance. But Christ suffered. He, he, he committed no wrong. He needed no discipline. He needed no correction. He needed no punishment. Yet what he did is he went to the cross and took punishment upon himself. He took wrath upon himself. It was not his own. It was the wrath each one of us have stored up in our own transgression against God so that every one of us in this place this morning, you can confront your sin fearlessly, confidently, because you know that the cross has the final word on your sin, that Jesus took it upon himself so that through faith in him, trusting in his work on the cross, confessing that sin, that is wiped from your slate and you are forgiven. You are made righteous in God's sight. It's why we celebrate communion every Sunday here, is remembering that broken body, that shed blood of Jesus Christ. What sins need brought to light? Confess them. Get in relationship with the body of Christ where these things can be worked out because we have the good news of a God who saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, help us. I want, God, that your glory, your rule, your goodness would shine into every corner of my heart and onto every corner of this world, into every corner of the lives of those in this room this morning, into the lives of those connected at this church, God. We want the supremacy of Christ to rule. So, Father, we ask for your help. We pray that you would encourage relationships. We pray, Father, that you would give us meaningful connection one to another, that these things could be brought to light, that, God, you'd give us boldness in speaking with our friends about issues in their life that are not leading them down the path of the greatest joy. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us compassion, really. Give us love that, Father, we might care enough to, to step in for those that we love and turn them, be of, uh, filled with your Holy Spirit by your grace and your mercy. Help them to turn from their sin and to trust you and to treasure you. So Father, as we come to communion this morning, help us to confess these things in our own lives and to look to Christ, that our joy would be found in him 
and in him alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.